Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one: giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org/donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org/donate. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program of the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Tim Flannery, author of Here on Earth: A Natural History of the Planet. Dr. Flannery is an internationally acclaimed scientist, explorer, conservationist, credited for studying, discovering more than 30 new species of mammals. He's also the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed Weathermakers. Dr. Flannery is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books and the Times Literary Supplement. He'll give a presentation here for about 30 minutes, and then we'll have a conversation, including your questions. So please welcome Tim Flannery. Thanks so much for that kind introduction, Greg, and it's it's great to see you all here this evening.、Uh, the last time I spoke at the Commonwealth Club、uh, it was just before the Copenhagen meeting, and I was chair of the Copenhagen Climate Council at that time.、Uh, a lot of waters passed under the bridge since then, and one of the things I wanted to do this evening was just give an update on how we are doing as a species in terms of rising to this great challenge of addressing climate change. But、uh, before I do that, I wanted to talk briefly about the book here on Earth that I've been uh, uh, talking about for the last month around the country. It really arose out of questions that were asked of me over the last well decade, really, about what humanity's future is. And people would often frame it a bit like, well, what what chance is there that we're going to overcome this climate problem? Uh, what about the human population problem, the,、uh, the the emerging food crisis, the water crisis, the energy crisis? A whole lot of problems we're facing、uh, this decade and this century. And the only way I could think really of trying to give an adequate answer for that question was to go back to the beginning, go back to the basics of the process that formed us and our world, because it's. It's it's where we intersect with the planet that the problems arise, the problems of sustainability arise. That quest took me back to Charles Darwin、uh, and his great insight that、um, all of the diversity of life on Earth has been formed by this evolutionary process, evolution by natural selection. It's a really simple idea. It's just that、uh, in any population there is variation between individuals. 
Some of those individuals will find themselves better suited to the conditions that they're living in than others, and they'll leave more offspring, and that over the vastness of geological time, that has created all of the diversity we see around us. I was particularly interested in, in pursuing Darwin's idea in terms of this book because it seems to me that at the base of a lot of our problems is a, is a misunderstanding of what evolution by natural selection has to teach us. Within five years of Darwin publishing that seemingly innocent idea, people were already starting to talk about uh, things like survival of the fittest, nature being red in tooth and claw, all of these analogies that um, were being applied directly to our society. And of course Darwin's book published in 1859 on the origin of species bore a most unfortunate subtitle. It was, uh, it included the phrase, and on the preservation of favoured races. Now if I was going into a bookshop in 1859 in Britain and saw a book with a title like on the preservation of favoured races, I don't think I'd be thinking about worms that were just slightly better at being worms. You know, that's what Darwin meant by, you know, favoured races. I'm sure I would have been thinking about the British Empire builders out in India and the, the British, the victorious British upper class, the industrialists that seemed to be the pinnacle of human evolution at the time. And of course with that, with that view that this was a survival of the fittest world, uh, a number of social agendas were kicked off and they range from the emergence of national socialism in, in Germany in, in the early 20th century through to the, the, the proliferation of eugenic societies around the planet uh, at that time. And I think they had a deep impact as well on our, our more general thinking. You know, the neoclassical economics with its insistence that uh, a truly free and unregulated market is in the best interest of humanity seems to me too to have roots in that sort of thinking, that this, in this survival of the fittest world, you grab what you can now, otherwise someone's going to grab it off you. But is that really what Darwin taught us? The more I thought about it, the more I realised that could not be the case. Um, that this is not a survival of the fittest world. This is a world where evolution has spawned extraordinary interrelationships, interactions and uh, uh, co-evolutionary outcomes. I started to think about my own body. I mean, you know, on my skin I have hundreds of species of fungus and bacteria and virus, viruses. And I look, I do wash even though I'm an Aussie, so it's not that I don't wash, but it's just that us human beings have thousands of other species living on and in us. Um, and we can't survive without them. Um, you know, the, if, if, if I, my skin were truly sterilised, I would be, my health would be compromised. If I lost my gut flora, I'd be in very serious trouble. And that's been shown recently by medical science, people studying some of the larger co-inhabitants of our body. Hookworm is a good example. You know, hookworm we've often thought of as a disease or a parasite. We're now learning that if you eliminate hookworm, you can fall prey to diseases such as Crohn's disease, and um, which is an autoimmune response to the lack of our immune system being challenged. In fact, you can go on the internet right now and buy hookworm eggs if you've got Crohn's disease and, and cure yourself of the, of the condition. So they're important, and the, the take-home lesson is that we, just just me standing in front of you, I mean, 10% of my body by weight is other species. We are all um, ecosystems of near-planetary complexity, and it all tends towards homeostasis, towards keeping us alive and keeping the system going. The Earth 
has some of the same properties as our own body, you know, and, and what evolution's legacy is, not the process which is cruel and amoral without doubt, but the legacy of that process of evolution by natural selection is one of a competent, integrated and uh, functional planet. I want to talk briefly about our own species because I think we need to understand some of the changes that are happening in our civilization that bear on its relationship with the planet. We started 10,000 years ago as, as hunter-gatherers. People every bit as intelligent, if not more intelligent, than those living today, yet um, incapable of the great things that are happening uh, in our civilization today. We, over the last 10,000 years, have built what I would loosely term a superorganism. It is a level of organisation which is intermediate between that of an organism such as ourselves and an ecosystem. Ed Wilson, the great evolutionary biologist, uh, is the expert in this area. Um, and our superorganism is very much like an ant superorganism or a termite superorganism. After all, the, the, you know, the termites started out life as cockroaches that discovered agriculture 100 million years ago. Yeah? And they built these very, very complex civilizations today and we just like the termites have built great civilizations without the use of reason you know we've built them these are evolutionary outcomes and the ants the termites and the bees all have something to teach us you know the um, one thing we learn is that the part of the glue that holds superorganisms together is the division of labor and that's been incredibly important in our human civilizations and what happens as we divide labour between us is that we create an ever more powerful civilization or superorganism, but that we as individuals become more dependent one upon the other. Right? So one way of, of, of sort of summarising that is, is that as the superorganism grows in power, so the individual loses autonomy. You know? I don't even cook most of my meals anymore. I get someone else to cook them for me. Right? So we become interdependent upon one another. That means that the survival of the superorganism becomes all important to us. It delivers almost all the amenity in our lives today. Yeah? So we can't afford to bankrupt the planet as a group. And we, the, the, this superorganism is becoming ever more connected. Just the, over the last 15 years, we've seen you know, with 3.3 billion mobile phones in, on the planet and increasing number of people having access to the internet, that the individual has become mightily empowered and we're seeing changes around the world as that occurs. We're seeing it in North Africa right now in the Middle East right now. As we form this one great superorganism where we are all intimately interconnected, I think we gain the capacity to deal with a lot of environmental challenges in, in rather unexpected ways at times. Um, and I just want to, before I go on and discuss how we're dealing with things, particularly the climate issue, I just want to make a couple of key points. Um, one is that uh, information systems tend to organise matter. So the DNA that is the blueprint of my body is an information system. It's a digital information system. It's organised the matter of my body as we see it now. Uh, at the global global level, uh, the DNA of all living things have profoundly altered Earth. They've made it a living planet in a very, very profound way. You know, nothing about the planet that we see is, is uninfluenced by life over the top of the skin. You know, the scientists have recently speculated that even the continental rocks beneath our feet have resulted from energy inputs from life, in part. So that's a, that's a very important thing uh, to understand. 
The other thing that we need to understand in terms of us as a species, people will often say, well, us humans, we're just too greedy and selfish to act as any sort of global intelligence for planet Earth. I don't think that's true. We only need to look at our own bodies for an example of a greedy, selfish organ that is very good at running our bodies, our brain. Our brain weighs 2% of our body mass, yet it takes 20% of all of the energy we get from our food. It's a really greedy organ, yeah? And just interesting, by the way, that, you know, the, the global energy budget that's harvested by living things is about 100 terawatts. Humans are using about 16 terawatts of energy, so the ratio of us to the planet in terms of energy requires about, about the same as what the brain gets, about 20%. And the brain is very selfish. It will cut off supplies of oxygen and nutrients to every other organ in the body before it deprives itself of one iota of what it needs to run. And yet it's, it's self-regulating. Yeah? It, 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 it knows the one thing it can't do is bankrupt the system upon which it depends. And it's interesting that us humans are becoming self-regulating for all of our selfishness. The UN population projection figures that came out today illustrate that. We are heading for a population now of around 9.3 billion mid-century. It's a very big number. But by then, virtually the entire human species will have passed through the demographic transition and will have limited its family size. That is the, that's the hallmark of a great command and control system, the fact that it can be self-regulating. So there, there is hope for us, I think, as a species in terms of playing a, a, a more positive role in, in the Gaian ecosystem. And perhaps, you know, if we take the very long view, we can see the day that might arise when humans will be a true global intelligence for the planet, when through our our, um, our, our nervous system, if you want, which is everything from our agricultural systems through the satellite surveillance and so forth, we will be integrated into the Earth system in a way that makes it more productive and more stable rather than being a force for the negative. But that is a long way into the future if we look at that. To return to the climate problem, it is no doubt the greatest threat that humanity faces today. So what evidence is there that we are making any progress at all in this area? I chaired the Copenhagen Climate Council for three years and, and saw the great expectations that existed in society in the lead-up to the meeting in Copenhagen. It was the biggest meeting of heads of government ever to have occurred in the history of our species, so the biggest meeting of, of, of leaders of government ever. Um, over what? Over climate. Yeah? We didn't get a global treaty out of the meeting and those of us who were close to the process knew many months out that that was an unlikely outcome, but there was raised expectations in the community, and so in the wake of the Copenhagen meeting, people were very disappointed. But we did, we know now, get something very valuable out of that meeting, and that is the Copenhagen Accord, forged with the help of your President Obama. It wouldn't have happened without him. That accord has now seen um, nations responsible for 80% of global emissions pledging of reductions, um, to be to be achieved by 2020. Lord Stern has calculated that if all of those pledges are honoured, we will have about two-thirds of the emissions reductions that we need to be on trajectory to avoid dangerous climate change. So that's a great positive. We, when we disbanded the Council in 2010, understood how important it was that nations honour those commitments. So we have gone back, by and large, to our nations and uh, are working there to make sure that our countries honour their commitment. I'm now Australia's Chief Climate Commissioner in part to help my country honour the commitment it's made to reduce its emissions by 5% below 2000 levels uh, by 2020. 
a lot is happening in that space. China is forging ahead with uh, reducing emissions intensity, growing uh, its green economy. Uh, it is it is also trialling, we, we learnt just last month, trialling emissions trading schemes. Seven regional schemes are being uh, are being trialled. And there are, there is in-depth negotiations going on now between the Europeans and the Chinese about the possibility of forming one global emissions trading scheme. In other words, China joining the EU ETS. If that happens, we have a global trading scheme of enormous power. Other countries uh, are doing a lot as well. Uh, India is a good example. The poorest of the G20 countries has a tax on carbon now and a very, very fulsome energy efficiency program being unfolded. Uh, even in this country where it's so easy to lose hope about things, um, you, you have a target of minus 17% below 2005 levels by 2020. You've already achieved minus 9%. Now, part of that's due to the economic slowdown. Part of it's due to other government programs kicking in. And I met uh, President Obama's climate advisor uh, just uh, the week before last, and uh, he was cautiously confident that this country would reach its target. So there is hope in all of this. What we've pledged under Copenhagen is not enough, but it is a good first step. And we, ha we have to acknowledge that. We have to acknowledge there's hope. But there is not a moment for complacency because the struggle ahead of us is going to get ever steeper in the next commitment period. When I think about trying to evaluate how we are doing in terms of the climate stakes, I sometimes think I'm a bit like someone who's invested money into a retirement fund in the stock market and then I go back and check the stock market every five minutes to see whether I'm going to retire rich or poor. You know, it's a stupid and useless exercise here. You've got to pick the appropriate time scale in which to ask that question. And going to the 24-hour news cycle is a bit like reading the stock market every five minutes. You know, you just end up being burnt out because some idiot said something stupid in Congress and it makes you very angry. The right time frames, I think, are decadal time frames to look at this. And when I think back on what we've done since 2005... I see signs of enormous progress. In 2005, no one had heard of an inconvenient truth. Al Gore hadn't released it. The climate scientists were pulling their hair out about the problem, but the public was still largely unaware. Since then, we've had raised public awareness globally. We've had the biggest meeting of heads of government ever in the history of our species coming to an agreement on acting. Um, we are agreed that we, 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 will, we do not wish to exceed two, exceed two degrees of warming and we now have national programs in place that need to be honoured. The job now for us is to knuckle down and make sure that our countries carry their fair share of the burden uh, and, and do as much else as we can in other areas. But we need, to, uh, we need to have hope, we need to look at things over the right time scale and we need to somehow regather the energy uh, that's required to carry this further. So with that, I think I'm going, to, I'm going to stop and join Greg in conversation. Thank you very much. Let's start. I want to pick up on a couple of things from your book that I found really interesting, and then uh, we can get into some of the more contemporary current events things. And um, you wrote that the sun is the ultimate source of energy for even fossil fuels, the you know, ancient captured sunlight, which I thought that was really interesting, you know, that they created biomass that then became. And, and so I'd like to hear a little more about that, about how really the sun is the ultimate energy source, even for things we don't think of as, as related to the sun. 
Sure. Well, look, the the um, the Earth system is pretty much a closed system. All that comes in is sunlight. All that goes out is heat energy, by and large. Um, plants capture about four percent of the sunlight that that fall on the surface of the planet. That gives life an energy budget of around about 100 terawatts of energy, and that is that has been used over the past four billion years to to change the surface of the, to change the face of the planet. The principal use to which that energy is put is creating chemical imbalances between the three principal organs of planet Earth. So, um, you know, in a dead at a dead planet. The organs of the planet are at, at chemical rest. Yeah, they're, they're, they're chemical equilibrium. And the organs are? Oh, so the atmosphere, the oceans and the rocks, the three phases of matter. We can think of them as organs of the planet. Sure, okay. If you want. Uh, and in, on, on, on Earth they are dramatically out of balance. All of the dangerous metals and, you know, heavy metals and so forth were once in the ocean. They're all in the rocks now, courtesy of life. Or most of them are in the rocks, courtesy of life. Uh, the carbon that would have been in the atmosphere and the oceans is in the rocks because life has put it there creating this chemical imbalance. The, the, the oxygen itself, 99% of the gases in the oxygen, James Lovelock argues, are a creation of life. You know? So the planet has been transformed. And as I mentioned in the talk, one of the, the great surprises recently is that even the continental rocks result in part from, from life. And the argument there is that um, you know, continental rocks are derived from erosion of oceanic rocks. And we know about the energy budget on the early Earth and we know about the timing and rate of, t- of creation of the continents. Uh, and there wasn't enough energy on the early Earth to create the continents at the time and manner in which they were created. There had to be an extra source of energy. Scientists think that that source of energy was being captured by living things, which then created acids that hastened the erosional process that created the continents. And that, that is just a phenomenal insight for me to the, the rocks under my feet are a manifestation of life, not just the atmosphere and the oceans. So it all, it's all down to this massive energy budget that life commands. And of course, as we damage the life system, as we fell forests, as we damage the oceans, we're reducing the energy budget that keeps the planet habitable. So Earth isn't like at rest, right? It's like an elastic band that's really tightly stretched. And the, 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 the extent to which it can be stretched is determined by the energy budget commanded by life. So Earth, has, as a living org, organism or a system, has gone through profound transformational change before humans, but you're saying that the change we humans are imposing on the system are somehow different or more detrimental than the system changes brought upon itself earlier? Look, there has been many assaults to life through the, the history of the planet, including right. asteroids striking it and... Uh, toxic oceans, which have been caused by too much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Ice ages, mass extinctions. All of that sort yeah. of stuff. So the, the system is always changing, but it's robust enough to command a large enough energy budget to keep keep going. What we're doing as humans now is, is by destroying biodiversity, um, by uh, damaging um, uh, the living fabric of the planet, destroying forests and so forth, and putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. We're stressing that system. And so reducing its resilience, its biodiversity and its productivity. So if that goes on long enough, you, you provoke a crisis. You, you, you damage the living fabric of the planet. And you've been using the term energy budget. Explain really what you mean by energy budget. Look, I just mean the amount of energy captured from the sun by living things, okay. right? so by plants particularly. So that is the energy budget life has available to it to keep the, the chemical imbalance 
appropriate for life between the three organs of the planet, if, if you see what I mean there. yeah. Because yeah, yeah. if the atmosphere was full of carbon dioxide like it is on a dead planet, life couldn't persist as we know it today, yeah? Right, and that, and some of the other planets, okay. And you write about a potted history and you talk about waste disposal, the thing we burn things and put them in the atmosphere, or we bury them in earth, or we dump them at sea. Tell a little bit about how that has impacted the balance or how that's changed things. Sure, well when there was only a few of us on the planet and we were using very simple compounds, that those sort of disposal mechanisms worked because, because nature would recycle everything that we used, you know. But now when there is so very many of us and we are inventing these novel compounds, um, there is no way to throw anything to, you know. And we're realising belatedly the danger of that and we are, we are now moving towards eliminating the most dangerous of the things that we produce. So the, particularly the persistent organic pollutants, the things that, you know, the second we make them, we know they're going to end up in our body because they bioaccumulate, yeah. We've banned those now under the, under the, um, uh, the POPs treaty, which has been a major step forward. Uh, we are moving to regulate other form of pollutants because we realise that we, there, there is no way in this system to throw things to. Everything is intimately linked to everything else. So throwing away, nothing ever goes away. It's just, it no. stays as part, in a different form as part of the system. That's right. The only thing that comes in sunlight, the only thing that goes out is, is, is heat energy. And you mentioned um, James Lovelock. Talk a little bit about his Gaia hypothesis. And that's a, well, I've been fascinated by Lovelock for a long time. He's an extraordinary man. He's 92 years old. Uh, he was working here in California at the Jet Propulsion Lab when he first realised that Earth was a living planet. And he talks about it in his in the biography. Uh, he says that there he was um, looking at the first data to come in uh, from atmospheric analysis of Venus and Mars and saw that both had enormous concentrations of CO2. And he realised instantly that these were planets at chemical rest they, the, there was there was the, you know the, there was a they were just chemically static state static state right mm-hmm. and, and he understood instantly that earth was different and and what what made it different it was life he, at that stage we hadn't quantified life's energy budget or anything else but he knew it was big enough to change the atmosphere and that started him thinking about this gaian system and he soon realized that that in fact it is a system that seeks equilibrium um, that it seeks a steady state, which is which is capable of sustaining life. Now, it's not always successful at doing that. And, in fact, one of the really interesting tweaks on Lovelock's thoughts about this is that he's recently began to wonder whether Earth might not have two states rather than one steady state it, it seeks, um, because the oceans, uh, in the oceans, life thrives when the water column is less than 10 degrees Celsius, what is that, 45 degrees or something Fahrenheit, Mm -hmm. because the waters can mix, and then life in the ocean flourishes. But life on land likes temperatures at about 23 degrees. So Lovelock says, well, maybe the reason we move from an ice age to a warm period so quickly with as a result of a very tiny change in the amount of sunlight hitting the surface of the planet is that the oceans start winning the tug of war or the, the land starts winning the tug of war and starts dragging the global temperature towards its preferred state. So there's a lot we don't know about the, the, the Gaian system. Um, major universities around the world now have uh, departments of Earth system science basically mining Lovelock's initial insight for more understanding of the way systems works. 
But to me, it's, it's, it's an extremely profound insight and, and, and critical, in fact, to our future survival. Makes me think of a little bit of yin and yang, sort of opposite forces that are in some kind of dynamic balance, and there's a little bit of inter- element of each yeah, in, yeah. in each other. Well, it's, it's interesting, you know, that the, this, this information system that organises matter on the planet always seems to seek the same thing. It seeks an equilibrium in our own bodies where we're homeothermic. We are, you know, our, uh, our chemistry is stable, and, and the DNA has dictated that, you know. Uh, it's, in a superorganism, it's the same thing. In a termite colony, temperatures are kept constant. Uh, you know, things are organised. Again, the DNA is, 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 is sort of doing that. And at the planetary level, we see the same outcome. It's as if, regardless of the level of hierarchy that we're dealing with, the information systems are organising matter to a particular end. And the dynamic, it's always seeking some sort of balance, right? Yeah. It's a dynamic balance. James Lovelock also writes that nine out of ten living people living in this century will die of climate impacts. I thought we'd cheer you up here a little bit on Saturday, <laughs> Wednesday night in San Jose. Um, leaving a few hundred million people in Greenland and New Zealand to scratch out a subsistence living. Wow. See, that's where I part ways with Lovelock. Um, he, he writes about Gaia as if the Gaian system is an old lady, as he says, that, that is easily disturbed and like to take fright and die if, if, if it's, you know, if, if conditions mm-hmm. change too much. Or else we'll kick these teenagers out of her house, you know, that, and, and so we'll go extinct. Um, I don't think that the Gaian system is like that at all. I think there's no evidence for that. What I see is... You don't think humans can push it to that level? I think we could, but I don't see the evidence for it. I think that we have every chance of actually pulling back from that. Uh, and, and there's a lot of mechanisms, our self-preservation mechanism and our increasing capacity to cooperate, which gives me hope. But I think the Gaian system is much more like a newborn baby, you know. Newborn, newborn infants have a brain, they have a nervous system and a body, but they're yet to be fully integrated. So the self-awareness and the ability, the capability of newborn infants is very, very limited, you know. Um, and, and our Earth has this new formed or new forming global intelligence. We have, with all of our new technology, uh, an incredible opportunity to create a nervous system that will monitor the planet for us and help us run it, you know, or at least nudge it towards a more efficient and stable state. Um, but we also have to acknowledge that, that infancy is the most dangerous period in life and that we may fail, that we may. Don't always have, infants don't this. always have the best judgment. That's right. And, so we are at a critical moment, and what will determine our fate is us right now. It's us people who live in this generation, yeah? For the next, probably the next 40 years, we have all the opportunities to do what's required. The future generations beyond that may not be so lucky. Yeah, infants aren't, aren't aware of the consequences of their actions. That's right, they're not fully integrated, competent human beings, but some of them do survive, obviously. <laughs> Before we go to some more contemporary topics, you write about the extinction machines and previous uh, large mass extinctions in Australia 45,000 years ago where lakes dried up and, and other things happened. You also write about Cortez and, and the mass, uh, you know, guns, germs, and steel, barring from Jared Diamond. What did we learn from previous, you know, mass extinctions about the way the system responds to, I guess, extreme shocks? Well, there's, there are several ways of thinking about that and one of the uh, at one end of the spectrum really is the thoughts of uh, Peter Ward a paleontologist who has written a book called the Medea Hypothesis mm-hmm. that hypothesis is 
is named after the Greek um, mythical figure Medea who murdered her own children. Uh, and, and Ward's argument effectively is that life, life success always brings about the destruction of life. Yeah? So he says that most of the great extinction events in the past are due to life being very successful, disrupting the balance of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and therefore causing changes in oceanic circulation that create a toxic earth. And he sees events that humans are now uh, part of as being just a continuation of that cycle. And you know, the Medea hypothesis rests on an under, or a basis that we live in a survival of the fittest world. I think that's wrong. We don't. Um, and it also rests on a, a newfound awareness of, of our environmental crisis, and that that is fair enough. You know, um, what I think the, that it's more likely that there's been a number of causes for these previous extinction events. Uh, nature has bounced back when these external shocks hit. It often takes a very long time. And it's not to say that it will always bounce back. But life is tenacious on the planet. Since that moment around three billion years ago when life commanded a sufficiently large energy budget to take control of Earth's systems, it has persisted as being the dominant force on the planet. And I guess that's where some human optimism comes in to think, well, there's a natural order of things or that if you believe that the resilience of Earth, that it's, it's, um, a lot of, done a lot of harsher things to itself than we're, than humans are currently doing to it and it has endured and, and your words bounce back, uh, or that technology will come in and somehow, you know, um, save, save the day. Well, yeah, there's there's always that that hope, and you know, I, I tend to work in a world where I can make a difference. And when I think about the world 40 years from now, I find it hard to imagine that world. And I hope that technology will have made an enormous difference. I mean, for me, five years is quite a long time. You know, the world before Al Gore is very different from the world we live in now. Five years from now, it's going to be a different world again. Um, and, I, and I hope that new technologies will save the day, but what I, what I know is that what we need to do now, this year, next year, you know, the year after, which is to do everything we can to one of those obligations to reduce emissions, foster innovation in, in those areas, uh, you know, uh, try to take leadership positions in all of this, you know, use our energy to, to secure our future. It's a great privilege to be in that position. You know, as I said, future generations may not have that privilege. Our guest at Climate One today in Silicon Valley at the Commonwealth Club is Dr. Tim Flannery, author of Here on Earth, A Natural History of the Planet. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's pick up a little bit on the Copenhagen Accords, which you mentioned. We, we were both there, uh, and there was great exalted expectations around Copenhagen, uh, and the world thought maybe we got, might get this nice little deal with a bow wrapped around it. Uh, didn't happen. And a lot of people walked away saying it's quite a failure. You're actually um, more optimistic that it actually achieved something that is that is going to have an impact. Well, I think it's self-evident that it wasn't a failure. It, it didn't get us the, the, the global treaty, the golden moment, when we could all say, wow, we've beaten this problem, you know. Well, we were never going to get that anyway. The problem isn't of that kind. It's, this is an interdecadal problem that we're dealing with. Um, and human beings are still struggling with the, the means to agree, you know, outcomes here. It, it, and that is not easy. Um, we know from game theory it's extremely difficult. Um, but we are developing mechanisms that allow us to agree. And, and one, you know, us being selfish, upright apes, we are often best if we set our own targets. And, and na- nations, which are still important, have set their own targets under the Copenhagen Accord and are pursuing them. Um, there's no guarantee we'll succeed in achieving them all. Um, but even under a global treaty, a legally binding treaty, you know, I, I don't think that the, 
the UN had sent in the blue helmets to arrest the Prime Minister of a country that breaches an international agreement, you know. So we're limited in what we can do even under formal treaties. So we have this framework, this Copenhagen Accord, voluntary. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll lose weight the way I want to. Thank you very much. Not everyone's going to lose weight the same way. I'll do my own uh, diet. So t- talk about some of the countries that are, are exercising most aggressively and doing the best on their carbon diet. Well, the, the big standout for me was China because prior to the Copenhagen meeting, in fact, when we set up the council, China and India were still saying, look, this, this climate problem is, is a problem for the developed countries. Don't get in our way as we develop. You know, you guys carry the burden of emissions reduction. And that was very much the thinking under the Kyoto mechanism, you know, the, the developed the countries. The rich countries created the problem, they yeah. can solve the problem. And they take the first step. Yeah. Something happened in the lead-up to Copenhagen, and I think it was due perhaps to the Copenhagen process itself. China began to see opportunities in this, right, in, in this for developing a new green ecology, economy. They saw they were up against the limits environmentally. And all of a sudden they have become enthusiasts for green energy. You know, just over the last few years, China's become the biggest wind producer, the biggest PV producer. They've got a photovoltaic photo, solar, yes, yeah. photovoltaic mm-hmm. solar, which is now a vertically integrated industry in China. Uh, producing vast numbers of panels at ever cheaper prices. So, you know, look at the cost curve. It's, you know, the price is going down 20% a year, year on year. Uh, huge changes happening there. In terms of China's overall emissions, um, this 12th five-year plan, which has just been announced, it, uh, that's, that's a, a fantastic step forward. China's no longer building a new coal-fired power plant a week. It's moving away from that. They're talking about a cap on overall coal use. They are also um, look, they are also trialling these emissions trading schemes, which is fantastic. It's rather ironic that a that a that a communist country is using a market mechanism to deal with a problem, and a market economy in the U.S. doesn't want to use a market mechanism that uses regulation. It's sort of like a backwards world, but well, there's, yeah, that's there's the state capitalism and there's market capitalism, and yeah, yeah, right. well, exactly. But but uh, so China's doing particularly well. Uh, South Korea doing extraordinarily well. They're mm-hmm. 2% of GDP going into uh, to, to green technologies and they know they have to move because they've got a very restricted space between Japan and China, you know, as a major manufacturer. They need their own niche and they can see it in grabbing their bit of green tech. Europe has now moved on to a, a deeper target, minus 25% rather than 20%, which is a good thing to see. Uh, the other developing countries, as I said, India has... Uh, has um, now a carbon tax in place. It's only a small one. It's only a dollar a tonne for coal burned in the country, but they've got a great energy efficiency program. I work with Tata Power in India, and I know that they see that carbon price as the first step in many in the future, and uh, they are looking to, to much less carbon-intense means of electricity generation in India, and that's the poorest of the G20 economies. So, And in Australia, my own country, we're chasing a, a minus 5% reduction, below 2,000 levels. That might seem small, but because our population and our economy is growing so fast, we would have had plus 24% in terms of emissions had we done nothing by 2020. So that's a minus 29% cut. That's a huge cut, nearly you know, nearly a third uh, beyond business as usual. It's going to be extremely challenging to do in the next eight years, but we are moving forward to put a carbon price in place. We've got a 20% mandated renewable energy target agreed by both sides of politics in place to make sure we're fostering that green technology in the country. Uh, and I think we've got a chance of making that target. So, so there is movement all around the world. 
It sounds like a combination of fear and opportunity that, that is driving these countries. That they're they're concerned about the resource limits, but they also see opportunity. Of I mean, if you read Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, you know, he will say that whoever owns energy technology in the 21st century will will be a global leader. And China, uh, some people believe that China really wants to own the clean energy era the way that the West owned uh, industrial production. Is that fair? I'm sure they'd love to. But are we going to let them do it? That's the question. So far, we are. Well, we, who, depends yeah. on who we is. Is it America Sorry, or Australia yeah. or who? Uh, but so far, they're out front and they're getting further ahead, aren't they? They are. They are indeed. Um, but you still have enormous power in this country. And, you know, one of the encouraging signs is that California is, um, is uh, pursuing its own emissions trading scheme and that will foster innovation uh, in, this, in this state. Uh, and I think give, give you a leading edge here. Um, so how does California look? You travel all over the world. California, you're based in Australia. You know, how does California look from the outside in in terms of its role in this area? It looks like a global leader and, and a very welcome one. Um, you, know, um, you know, Australia and California are both moving towards doing something this year in terms of getting a carbon price in place. And we, we shouldn't underestimate the importance of that if we succeed. They will be beacons of leadership globally. And Australia, big, if people don't know, resource extraction economy, lots of coal, a lot of the, you sell a lot of, you, Australia sells a lot of coal to China. That's a big deal of such a big fossil fuel based economy is going to sort of unilaterally impose a tax on itself and make itself less competitive in, in very competitive international markets. Well, you are, you are right that we're the world's largest coal exporter. Um, we are imposing a tax upon ourselves but we see it as fostering future competitiveness in the Australian economy. We actually want to grow our clean tech sector and, um, and that this is one way of doing it. And we need to, we realise we need to carry our part of the burden of this. And we know what's happening in the rest of the world. It's not like we're acting alone, yeah? But there must be fierce resistance from fossil fuel interests in Australia. You must have oh, some wow. real political leadership. Well, yeah, it's funny. The big global companies know that change is inevitable. Um, but we do have our own version of the Tea Party who are doing everything they can to stop stop things, stop advancing in this, this field. Yeah. So it's really, really tough. I can't tell you how tough it is at the moment in Australia. But your new woman prime minister is, is forging ahead. Yeah. Yeah, we, we know things need to be done. The Australian public, by and large, want climate change addressed. Um, there's a tremendous fear campaign being kicked up, though, that this is going to bankrupt the economy and all of this sort of stuff. Um, but one way or another, we need to we need to get a, a price on carbon and, 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 and onto one of this this international commitment. And that's already happened in British Columbia and in, in Europe. And, and what has that yeah. experience? Uh, how successful have those experiences been? Well, New Zealand's got a carbon tax as well. I mean, <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys, you let New Zealand beat I you? No, yeah, exactly. No, they beat us at the rugby often enough, so it's it's, it's humiliating, Ouch. but it's reality. Ouch. But, um, yeah, I know. But look, you know, the, the best assessment of, uh, an emissions trading scheme is the US German Marshall Fund assessment of the, of the European emissions trading scheme, which was com- completed last year. And it, it basically shows that, you know, that the scheme is achieving what it's set out to do. And if you want to know what impact it's having on overall economic growth or on, on individuals, speak to anyone from Europe. Most people will say, what scheme? We, we're not aware of it. You know, there are a million price impacts on our lives. This is one tiny one. And the same is true, true, by and large, for business and competitors. I mean, Germany is prospering. 
despite its very ambitious targets that it's reaching. So uh, economic growth and putting a price on carbon are not incompatible. Our guest today, Climate One in Silicon Valley at the Commonwealth Club, is Dr. Tim Flannery, author of Here on Earth and scientist. I'm Greg Dalton. A couple of questions from the audience. Uh, one reads, what will prevent mankind from continuing to burn economically viable sources of fossil fuel as long as they last? Well, what has prevented humanity from mining all the asbestos that there was on the planet? Yeah, we stopped doing that some time ago because we knew how dangerous it was. Now, that is an individual health problem, fair enough, but we are becoming, I think, wise enough to see that there are global problems as well, which are partly health problems and partly environmental problems. So what will prevent us from doing that is, is two things. One is a global agreement to impose a cost on pollution, um, you know, and we're, we're getting there with that. The, the other is um, the increasing investments in, in green technology, which become economically ever more competitive. Uh, when I look at Australia, for example, the cost of electricity from, from black coal, um, it looks as if the cost curve for that is going to cross with photovoltaics sometime in the next five to ten years, you know, if, if the reductions in cost for photovoltaics keep going down. So what we're seeing around the world is the fossil fuels keep getting more expensive, clean tech keeps getting cheaper, um, and those, those lines will cross eventually. So between that and the, 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 the global agreements we have, I think that's what's going to keep the fossil fuels in the ground. Though you can burn coal at night, you can't get solar at night. There are some technological obstacles to having solar replace coal for base load. Sure, so there, some... there are, but they're not insurmountable ones. And, and as we move forward, I think we're finding new ways of getting intermittent energy integrated into the grid. We haven't talked about nuclear energy yet, um, and there's a question from the audience, is nuclear power worth the risks? And clearly, you know, since the Fukushima disasters, there's been a change in thinking about nuclear. Where are you on nuclear? Um, I think it's an issue for every country to deal with in their own way. Um, and just to give you a sense of where things have, how things have fallen out around the world, China is pursuing its nuclear program as aggressively as ever. It's going to go from 7% of energy from nuclear through to 22% by 2030. It's a massive build-out. Uh, Germany's moved away from it entirely, and, and Germany now faces a bit of a dilemma. You know, can it honour its commitments to reduce emissions um, Without nuclear, yeah, exactly, yeah. and that's it's an experiment no one's ever run at that scale. I'll be very interested to see how it works out, and the world is sort of watching, I think, on this one. So, you know, nuclear, like every form of energy, has its downside, um, and nuclear's ones are particularly self-evident. Um, but it's going to be part of the mix into the future, at least for some. Do you think that some designs or some approaches are more uh, promising or safer than others? I know. Uh, you were in Toronto recently, and they're, they're placing some big bets in Canada on, on nuclear, and they have a particular design that you think is safer, more viable. Well, the can-do reactors, or the Canadian-built reactors, have the sort of the concrete sarcophagus inbuilt in them, so you don't have to build it if there's a meltdown on those things. But the new the new nuclear technologies are looking pretty uh, pretty safe as well. You know, they rely on more gravity feed for cooling and all this sort of stuff rather than, than pumping. And they're smaller scale. They're less likely to go critical. So, I mean, I'm no expert in the area, but everything I hear suggests that there's a new generation down the road there somewhere which is going to be somewhat safer. But whether they'll be competitive with the renewables is anyone's guess. And whether they can come in on cost and on budget. Yeah, exactly. the nuclear industry has been promising for decades, oh, this new... This new 
new ones are better than last year's. It sounds a little bit like car salesmen, right? So, yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And they have recent history is that they don't come in on budget and, and on time. Sure, a bit like clean coal. You know, we we hope that we'll get that we get we'll get good outcomes, but it's by no means certain. Tim Flannery is author of Here on Earth and is our guest here at Climate One in Silicon Valley. Um, we, you mentioned population, um, and I, the number that you mentioned I thought was lower than what I read was the UN. I, I saw 10 billion for the first time. People had previously thought that 9 billion would stabilize and that looked like there was some uplift in, in where world population would, would peak and then um, flatten off for the demographic reasons you mentioned. I mean, isn't that one of the biggest levers in the whole climate challenge is if, if population growth could be slowed, then that would have a tremendous impact on resource consumption and carbon emissions. Yeah, it would. Look, what we're seeing with population, you can only understand by reference to the UN population projections. The one that was released today is is very new, and I haven't had a chance to fully analyse the underpinnings of it, but the one that was, the, the previous one was released two years ago, it suggested that global population had peak at 9.15 million, most likely, Billion, yeah. Billion, sorry. Yeah, 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 most likely. And that that would, that's in 2050. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting when you looked at the underlying assumptions of that modelling because they assumed that we would prevail over the AIDS virus, that that wouldn't be a limiting factor. They also presumed that population, uh, that the family size in the richest countries would increase slightly. Places like the US and Australia have bigger families. So all of the all of the gains in terms of reducing population was projected to come from increasing affluence and increasing uh, education for women in the poorest 46 countries on the planet. Which is one of the biggest things that we can do is educate yeah, women, right? Absolutely, I mean, the single biggest thing. If we if we if we manage to do that, if we manage to increase the welfare of the poorest people on the planet, we have a chance of stabilising the population at eight billion, right? by 2050. But that's going to take a lot of proactive foreign policy work and philanthropic work and whatever else is required. Um, to the projections that were released today were, were more pessimistic. They suggested that by 2050 there'd be a global population of 9.3 billion most likely, uh, growing slowly over the next half century to nearly 10 billion um, by, by, the, by 2100. That's a far less desirable outcome. Um, and I haven't looked at the under, underlying assumptions as to why that is, but I can only guess that uh, population growth in particularly Central and Western Africa is continuing at a higher rate than was previously thought to be the, uh, previously projected. Many times in the energy conversation, population is a taboo topic. Energy climate people don't want to go there because it's a polarised, controversial, social issue, and yet it seems like that's what you're saying is one of the most promising, though hard, places to make to make an impact. Gee, I thought climate science was controversial and hard. I don't yeah. know about population. Yeah. I certainly live that. It's really tough. Um, but, yeah, but, I mean, population, it does give me great, great heart that the entire human species is going to go through the demographic transition in just a century and a half. That means we're, we're self-regulating it. It's one of the great reasons for hope. A related question from the audience uh, regarding population is can we somehow educate people to be, if there could be more affluence and more people who are affluent, uh, can we educate people to uh, reduce, reuse, recycle? Can we be more, I guess, um, effective and, and uh, efficient consumers? It's the only way forward. We have to. We know that. We can't have a, a, a population of even 8 billion living in the way we live today. It has to be much more sustainable. 
Um, and you know, the, the 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 first thing that has to happen there is is moving from polluting energy sources to clean and relatively limitless ones, such as solar, wind, and those other clean tech opportunities, geothermal, whatever else, and, and use that energy we get much more efficiently. That's the great challenge. There's food issues, there's water issues and everything else, but if you've got cheap, clean energy, you can do a lot. Tim Flannery is author of Here on Earth, and he's our guest here at the Commonwealth Club in Silicon Valley. Another question from the audience. What has the most potential for carbon reduction to 350 parts per million, which is a measure of saturation in the atmosphere? Geoengineering or sustainable renewable energy? might define what geoengineering is. Sure, yeah. Um, Well, look, we're already at around 390 parts per million. So what that question implies is that we can get some gas out of the air. Now, there are geoengineering proposals um, which range from the mechanical way of getting CO2 out of the air through to things like biochar, harvesting uh, the, the power of plants to, to create a mineralised form of carbon which you then store in the soil. And I think they're all really interesting approaches. But scalability is an issue with them. Can, can we... You know, can we make an impact? Could, could we draw down one part per million per year or something like that? You know, that's a really enormous ask, and I, 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 we're yet to be anywhere near that. Um, I think we need to continue aspiring to that. Some of the other geoengineering projects which might involve, say, using dimming agents in the atmosphere, so putting sulphur in the stratosphere, for example, they don't help reduce the concentration of CO2, but they sort of mask the impact of the warming because they reflect sunlight back into space rather than letting it hit the surface of the planet. Um, we might need to use all of those options in future if we're not as agile uh, and, and good at dealing with this as I hope we will be. Um, so you advocate research into exploring, developing those tools in case we need to go for the emergency fire extinguisher at some point? That's right. I sit on a, the, the, the Harvard-based group looking at geoengineering options. And, you know, what we are strongly advocating now is more research on what the uh, impacts of any geoengineering proposal is likely to be. We're horrendously under-informed about that sort of stuff. And also promoting discussion of how we will agree to use any of these global mechanisms should the need arise. Who gets to push, pull the trigger and yeah, yeah. What, what group of humans do you trust with that power? That's right. They're all big questions. Yeah, yeah. Our guest is Tim Flannery at the Commonwealth Club today. Um, you talk about a clean energy bank, and I thought that was really interesting, uh, the idea of trying, you know, there's lots of technology out there. We're here in Silicon Valley. There's a lot of innovation, a lot of capital, but there's not even Silicon Valley doesn't have enough capital. So talk about a clean energy bank as a way to kind of drive more capital into to scaling these technologies you just mentioned sure. and, and developing new ones. Well, look, I'm not an economist, and I rely on my, my good friends, uh, 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 David Blood and others who are in this area for this, so these sort of ideas. But um, what what is being talked about, I understand, is the, part of the issuing of green bonds or the mm-hmm. war bonds type of things, the, the sort of things we see governments do when there is a major threat, and using that money then to invest in green technology. Technology and, 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 and taking um, money back. But we know the challenge is, is on the many billions of dollars to make meaningful progress. We need to somehow mobilise capital around that. Uh, and, and we need an innovative, innovative way of doing it. So a sort of green bank approach, you know, by government is one way of doing it. Um, we, we need to think about these things, I think, and get moving on them as quickly as we can because the, the need for capital is very large. 
We're getting close to the end here, but I wanted to uh, talk about a couple of things. You were here you know, 2009, I think it was, and you said something that I still vividly remember, which is that Australia is a harbinger for what we might experience here in the southwestern part of the United States. Australia since then has experienced floods of biblical proportions. So yeah. tell us about the massive floods, I think it was Queensland, and what impact that had on it and how, how they're bouncing back. And did people make the connection between that extreme weather event and climate change? Yeah. Well, of course, these sort of things are the things that climate scientists have been predicting for decades now, these sort of horrendous extreme weather events. Um, in, in the case of Australia, those floods were almost beyond comprehension. I went up to visit Toowoomba where the worst ones occurred. It's, it's, on the, it's on the peak of a mountain virtually. It's amazing that enough water could happen there. And it was interesting, one of the people was telling, were telling me that, uh, that they went into a cinema there to, to watch a movie and the rain hadn't started falling. By the time they came out of the cinema, the water had all gone, but the town was unrecognisable. You know, there was cars in trees and all sorts. It was like an inland tsunami an incredible event and just we haven't seen anything like it. And at the same time that's happening, in another part of the continent we have the worst droughts on record where over the entire year last year enough water reached the dams for two weeks supply to to the city of Perth. So we are seeing extremes that are having a big impact and I think part of that is partly uh, responsible for the, the, the fact that Australians really want climate change acted on. You know, we're living it. We're living the experience. And this happened others. partly in the coal area of, of the country, right? Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. Well, so did coal people whose living is dependent on the coal industry, did they make the connection that somehow coal's part of this or? Look, there's a, there's a widespread awareness that we need to do something. You know, people hope clean coal technologies are going to work out, you know. But at the end of the day, what people want is a job. It's a secure job and a secure affluent community to live in, you know. And as we transition away from fossil fuels into into this new energy technology, every society has an obligation to make sure that those 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 kind of uh, those aspirations are honoured, really. And we can. There's going to be a huge job creation with with new green technology. We're seeing it already in Australia with wind rollout and some of the the big uh, work being done on concentrated photovoltaics. And we're also seeing in this country that the, the similar extreme opposites. There's a page in the New York Times today of dust bowl droughts in Oklahoma where towns are disappearing because they don't have enough rain, crops are disappearing. And then uh, at the same time in Missouri and Mississippi, the Missouri has flooded. And so there's both too much water and not enough water. And it, it's amazing the stark contrast we're seeing on the same day, yeah. the same page in this country. Same story in Australia. Maybe this is the new climate. We, we won't know unless Congress invests more in, uh, you know, research, climate research. And from what I've seen of Congress, they're, they're acting a bit like King Canute in this country, you know, re- releasing a, a sort of a, whatever it is, a, re- a report or an agreement that climate change doesn't exist. And I think, well, you know, how sensible is that really? Why don't we actually get on with solving the problem? I mean, do conservatives in Australia at least acknowledge it exists and they just sort of argue on costs or we can't afford it or whatever? I mean, are there, do you have full-blown deniers that say it's a hoax? Look, we do have full-blown deniers and there is a number of them in the Conservative Party. But having said that, our conservatives have their own climate abatement plan. It's just that it doesn't rely on a market-based mechanism. It relies on purchasing green energy from from industry 
which you know, many economists and others uh, fear is a less efficient way of doing it than using the power of the market to, to get the abatement. But the the, the so, conversation's in a whole different place. It's about how much, how fast, yeah, sure. what, what, what tool to use. They don't argue that the car is broken. They just argue yeah. that, well, That's use a wrench, not a... A few do. A few argue the car's not broken, but, um, but both parties, regardless, have policies in place uh, to, to deal with the issue. Who are some of the leaders that you see acting internationally? You travel widely around the world and talk with powerful business people, political people. Who are some of the leaders that you really uh, are, are inspiring and are, you think are really having an impact? Wow. That's a really broad question. Um, some of them are really quiet achievers. Some are heads of industry that may not want to be named. Um, and I, 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 I am reluctant to name them because it often lands them in more hot water than, than others. But the CEOs of some very large mining companies around the world, for example, uh, have recently expressed the desire for, for places like Australia to move on a carbon price. Uh, Marius Kloppers from BHP is one of those people who, who last year said, it's about time we did something about this. And that, that was a very important moment. Because that's a huge resource extraction, coal company, deforesting yeah. lots of places. Yeah, That's right. For them to call for action on climate change is very significant. But they, they can see the impacts. They, they understand what's happening. And they're not dumb people. The CEO of Rio Tinto, similarly. Yeah, yeah. And there's some real heroes in the political arena. Um, you know, Jack Layton in Canada just earlier this week, you know, brought the NDP with its very green policies up from being the third party now to being the official opposition in Canada. So we, we see things start to happen. Our own, our own prime ministers, you know, battling on through all of this. So, uh, leadership takes many forms, you know, from from the highest in the, in, in the government down to just ordinary people who are doing what they can on, on this issue. And that's what's needed. No matter what position we're in, we, we need some more leadership on this issue because this is a critical time. Reach the point where we have uh, just need to do the last question here with, with Tim Flannery. And, and I want to mention that we have... Uh, Young man in the audience who looks like he's about 10 or 11 years old and, 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 uh, it's nice to see you here tonight. Uh, we often talk about future generations and it's nice to have a future generation in the room. So what do you say to a 10 or 11 year old? He's back there. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. That, uh, sorry to out you there, buddy. Uh, but, uh, uh, what do you say to someone who's that age in terms of what's, you know, our generation, gray haired guys like you and me are handing down and, um, to him? Sure. Look, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, the fact that your, your dad's brought you along here tonight is fantastic. He's, that's an act of leadership, bringing someone along, getting you engaged with this. Uh, I'd say don't give up hope and, and, and don't judge how well we're doing by the 24-hour news cycle or by stupid comments from congressmen. Um, you know, just know that we are making, we are slowly making a difference. We need to do better, but um, we're doing it for your future. And, um, and um, my God, we're going to succeed. I'm not going to let that and the worst happen. Yeah. And with that, our thanks to Tim Flannery for joining us here today. He's chairman of the Copenhagen Climate Council and author of Here on Earth, A Natural History of the Planet. And thank you to our audience here in San Jose. And for those of us, those of you listening to us on the radio, I'm Greg Dalton. And thank you for coming to the Commonwealth Club tonight. Thank you, Greg.